Glad you're here with us this morning as we uh, have gathered to worship and to hear from the Lord um, through his word. Um, what are we doing here? What is the, uh, what is the uh, reason why we gather, and in particular, why do we gather in this season in this way? So the Advent season that the church has for thousands of years historically paused on their church calendar, paused between Thanksgiving and Christmas, to pause to retell and remember the Christmas story. And here's what, here's what can get lost in that because there's nothing inherently wrong about pausing to remember and retell the Christmas story. Here's where we tend to stop short on it uh, is that we tend to remember and retell the Christmas story, the first Advent. We tend to do that just so that we can reminisce just so that we can feel nostalgic, just so that we can um, remember feelings about the, the, the nature of the season. And again, I'm, I'm chief in line of that. I love it. I love the sense. I love the lights. I love the memories. I love it all. That's not true for all of us. That's not true for many of us in, the, in this room. For some people in this room, this season is excruciating. For some people in this room, this season is not full of joy, uh, that you don't, Christmas joy couldn't be gone sooner for you. And so here's, I want to invite us into something a little bit deeper than just remembering to reminisce, to retell the Christmas story just for nostalgia's sake. Here's why the church remembers and retells the story of the first advent of Jesus. Advent is just a word that means the coming, the appearing, the arrival. And people in the ancient world would practice waiting for advents. When is the king going to advent among us? When is this dignitary going to advent among us? And what will it be like? And when will he be here? And will he be kind or will he be cruel? And what's it all, what does it all mean? And so the waiting that came with advent was a very natural thing to go, I'm anxious and I'm excited for this advent of this king. So the church remembers the first advent of Jesus, but beyond reminiscing for nostalgia's sake, we retell and remember the Christmas story because it is the first advent that gives the Christian hope to believe that the promises are true that he might advent among us again. So we retell the story of the first advent when we doubt that he would ever advent among us again. We re-remember re the story of the first advent because it gives us hope and promises to believe surely he advented among us once, he will do it again because he said he would. And so this season is meant to collide us with hope and the hope of the promises coming true. We don't just retell the Christmas story to remember and be nostalgic. We retell the Christmas story to give us hope for the second advent when all will be made well. All things new will come true like we just sang. So that's why we retell it. And we retell it and we study it and what was going on in the culture and what was going on at the time and what does God's word say to us about the, the narrative of the coming Messiah, Jesus, and his birth. So we're going to study it. But again, we're not just studying it to remember. We're studying it to give us hope for his second advent. So we're doing that this year. We're retelling it this year by looking at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of those that were close by when it happened, through the, those that had particular reactions to the coming king. What were their reactions and why were those the reactions that they had? So last week we looked at King Herod. He was not happy about the coming king. He was threatened by the coming king and he committed genocide because of the coming king. This week we're looking at these mysterious wise men we're looking at uh, these mystical uh, magi and how they encountered the coming king, Jesus. I just made you liars when we sang uh, because there weren't three and they weren't kings. Uh, but we just sang we three kings, so you need to repent of lying about that. So I didn't sing that part, okay? I'm kidding. So here we are, hearing uh, the story of the coming of Jesus according to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, who is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so quite the story here, and I would imagine uh, I've read it several times this week in preparation for it, but if that's your first time hearing it in a while, you probably, like me, have more questions than answers after you hear it. There's lots of questions that the Bible does not answer. What was this star? And how did it move? And how were they seemingly the only people that saw it? And what, what was it? And I'll just let you know, you can go down a major rabbit trail of Google and find out what theories have been proposed for centuries about what this star was. Was it a supernova? Was it an alignment of planets? Was it God himself? Uh, what, what, was, what was shining these wise men uh, to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem? What was it? I don't know. Who were these men? We know a little bit about the men, know a little bit about these magi, but how did these magi get a meeting with King Herod? These are just foreign men traveling to town, so how did they get a meeting with the king? Well, the term magi is an interesting one. It's not used very many times in scripture. Four of the six times that it's used is in this chapter, so we don't know a whole lot from the Bible per se about what magi were, but magi is not a Bible word. Magi, like same root word as magician, was an ancient office, was an ancient position in the east, in Persia and in Babylon. And these men, these magi were astronomers, they were astrologers, don't really know the difference. They were, they were scientists, they were mathematicians, they were magicians, they were uh, masters of the arts. They, they held this uh, dignified position where they taught people in their societies. They educated, they trained, they explored, they studied the sky. They were very noble and very elite men in their social setting. In fact, Daniel, if you remember Daniel from um, the Old Testament, Daniel, when they're taken into captivity in Babylon, Daniel rises to power. Belshazzar was his Babylonian name. He gets made chief magi, chief magician, chief teacher, chief instructor of the people in Babylon. Daniel was a magi. These were noble dignitaries. These were people who had social and educational clout that influenced entire cultures so this group of magi sees some kind of brilliant expression in the sky, something unique enough that wasn't normal, some alignment of some stars or planets, something that draws their attention and they pack up their things and hit the road. Now, some of what I'm about to tell you may ruin your manger scenes at home, and I'm sorry for that because it ruined mine too, but there weren't three Okay, you need to go buy not just like three more, you need to go buy maybe like 30 or 50 more of them. 
Most scholars think that there were dozens of magi. That's what a magi was a part of. They were part of a large group of these scholars and these magicians and these scientists that studied these things. And so this entourage, as you imagine, as you envision, as you think about this story rolling into Jerusalem of these men, it wasn't three men on camels. It was an entire entourage, and they probably, most likely, would have had military protection. They would have had servants. They would have been bringing an entire caravan with them. And that's how they get an ear before Herod, because this entire foreign dignitary of noble elites from Persia, from the east, is rolling into town with military protection. And they say, we need to talk to the king. And so the red carpet is laid out for them. Please come talk to King Herod. He would love to talk to you. Why are you here? Is Babylon angry with us? Is Persia upset with us? Do we need to do something? Come and teach us. Come and, come and tell us why you're here. So this entourage rolls in. It's not just three men on camels. And if you, if you can kind of, again, go back to your imagination, how far this entourage would have traveled should speak something to you about the importance of what they were doing. That if they came from Babylon, which is where most people think they came from, they would have traveled upwards or around a thousand miles across wilderness, across desert, across rough terrain, just to get to Jerusalem, just to explore what does this star mean and what is going on in Israel. All because of a star and all because of a hope, these men travel like from Nashville to Denver on camelback with their entourage. So all that's kind of this like fun background, like what's going on with them. Let me tell you why Matthew, the gospel author, puts these magi in the story. One, because it happened. But two, let me tell you what he's doing, because he's the only gospel writer that mentions it. What's Matthew trying to punch by highlighting these mysterious men? Well, these magi would have been non-Jews. Matthew, the gospel is written to a primarily Jewish audience, a Hebrew audience. And so everything he's doing when he includes details, he is trying to let you know something. He's trying to um, express something that would have landed on a Jewish people different than it lands on us. For a Jew, the first readers of Matthew's gospel account, the first people who would have read Matthew's history of the coming of Jesus would have read the fact that these magi are highlighted and they would have realized the Messiah came for the Jews. The Messiah came for the Hebrews. The Messiah came for us. This is our Messiah. You can't have him. But yet what Matthew's doing is saying the people who saw him, the people who sought after him, the people who came to worship him were outsiders. They came from the east, not Israel. They didn't grow up in synagogues. They didn't have the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't have all the prophecies. They didn't know whether or not anything was passed down from Daniel, the chief magi 500 years before about some king that might come to Israel. No one really knows. They don't have the law. They don't have the prophecies. They don't have the text. They don't have a temple. They were not supposed to get it. They were not supposed to be seeking after the Messiah. They were not supposed to be climbing over deserts and wastelands and wilderness to come and get, nothing will stop us to come and find this King Jesus who's been born. And yet, here they are, these magi, with a spotlight on them from Matthew. And here's what he's doing, and we're going to see this as we unfold this passage. Here's what Matthew's doing. Not only does he tell you that these outsiders came from the east, and these outsiders who should have no clue about who this Messiah is, not only are those men first in line, he's saying to the reader, be like these men. I want you to be like these men. You, Israel, have missed it, but these men get it. Matthew is shining a spotlight on them, commending them, saying, I want you to hold them up as the exemplars. I want you to see Jesus the way that they saw Jesus, not the way that the Jewish people saw Jesus. 
What's especially powerful about this comparison with the wise men, with the magi, is that when they show up on the scene, they are immediately contrasted with the religious leaders of the day. You see that in the text. When they show up to Herod's court and they ask about the birthplace of the one who has been born king of the Jews, that's an important line we'll come back to. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod immediately says, where are all my chief priests and scribes? This was a, would have been about a group of 40 men that would have been master memorizers of the Old Testament and all the Hebrew scriptures and the prophecies and the promises surrounding the Messiah. So he says, hey, where are my religious leaders? Where are the chief priests and the scribes? And the wise men come and say, hey, we saw this star, this supernova, this alignment of planets, whatever it was they, they saw, and we believe there is one who has been born here, King of the Jews. And they ask this question, where is your Messiah to be born? We don't have your text. We don't have your prophecies. We don't know the details. Where is your Messiah supposed to be born? And the chief priests and the scribes flip to one page. They go, Micah chapter five. We know it like the back of our hand. We've memorized it. Micah chapter five, our Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so the, 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 the Magi go, that's fantastic news. Where's Bethlehem? And they go, it's five miles south of here. It's an easy walk. It's a straight shot. It's not dangerous. They go, awesome. So the entourage of, of Magi gets all of their things and they traverse down to Bethlehem. Easy walk. And guess what detail Matthew doesn't include in the text after the Magi go to Bethlehem? And he doesn't include it because it didn't happen. Nobody goes with them. And you go, okay, maybe they retired. They've been, you know, looking at the Old Testament prophecies all night. Maybe they needed to, maybe they needed to sleep. No, it's not just that they don't go with them then. They don't ever go. The men who should have been on the edge of their seat going, when is our Messiah going to be born? When's the king coming to save us? Matthew chapter one says that our king is going to come and save us from our sins. And we have these weirdos from the east who came in and said, we think your Messiah has been born. And they go, yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Hope you don't get hurt on the way down there. Like these are the men that are supposed to be knocking down the doors of the manger. These are the men that are supposed to go, if someone even mentions Messiah that they think he's been born, we should be pulling up our cloaks and sprinting to Bethlehem at the thought, at the possibility, at the hope that our Messiah has finally been born. But these religious leaders don't even budge. This is the one we've been waiting for. And these mystics from the East say, I think he's here. And the religious leaders go to sleep. They don't even go see if it could be true. Like they don't even go see on a 5% whim, like these mystic magis from the East, what do they know about our Messiah? I mean, but I guess if they saw something, I want the Messiah to be born enough that I would go give up anything to go see if they're right. No emotion at the even possibility that these wise men could be onto something. One commentator said this this week, these religious leaders, by their clinging to positions of power and self-righteousness, prove themselves to be illegitimate in God's eyes. That's what's on display as a first century Jew would be reading this text. Wait, 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 wait. Matthew's saying that the wise men were the first in line and our religious leaders didn't even go. Part of what Matthew is saying is that an over-familiarity with the story of the coming king can lead to paralyzing apathy towards him. An over-familiarity with the story of the coming king can lead to paralyzing apathy towards him. These religious leaders are so sure, they're so positive that these outsiders could never be right that they're unwilling to move. 
So follow this, this thread. Their self-righteousness, these outsiders could never be right, was a product of their religious superiority, their religious eliteness. Their religious eliteness leads to their apathy, and their apathy is why they have no joy. So follow this thread. Their self-righteousness, we are so right, they don't know what they're talking about. They're outsiders, they're stupid, they don't have the Torah, they don't know Yahweh, they don't have a temple. We would never listen to them. We are right and they are wrong. Their, their, their self-righteousness is rooted in their religious eliteness. Their religious eliteness leads to their apathy and their apathy leads to their lack of joy. They have no joy at the news of the coming king. And if we're honest, especially if you were raised in the church, which I know many of you were, we're prone to the same thing. That especially during Christmas season, I was praying about it this morning, rereading these notes, that an overfamiliarity, especially with the Christmas story, an overfamiliarity can leave many of us unmoved and unchanged at the thought of the coming Messiah. Because we know the story. We know the story, just like these religious leaders. We know it. Shepherds, yeah, yeah, yeah. Angels, yeah, yeah. Mary, virgin, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, it's great. And there's something that happens because we're so familiar that we can't even sing Christmas hymns. We can't even hear the story of the coming Messiah. And we're just like these men. Guess what you won't do all Christmas season if you are far too, far too familiar with the story. If you're over-religiosity, if you're over-familiarity with the Christmas story, guess what will not happen one time this season, just like these religious leaders? You will not go and behold Jesus at all. You will miss seeing Jesus because of your self-righteousness that is rooted in your religious eliteness that has led to your apathy and your joylessness. If you have no joy in this season, I'm not taking away any of the pain that has happened in your life or the loss or the grief that makes this season difficult. But if this season sparks no joy in you, it may be because of your self-righteous religious eliteness. You will stay in Jerusalem and not walk to Bethlehem to behold Jesus. That's the punch of this passage. That's what Matthew is doing. He's holding up for the reader to see this. He, please try to feel the offense of this. This, is what, this would have been so offensive to a first century Jew reading Matthew's account of who was first in line to see Jesus. That those who were on the inside, the inside, the, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the memorizers of the Old Testament, they had every reason to sh that they should have had eyes to see the story unfolding before them. The greatest story in the history of the world up until this point. The Messiah has come. They should have seen it. And not one of them goes to check it out. And here's, here's the offense. Guess who was first in line? These outsiders. These people who you think you're way better than. These people who you think don't get it. The ones who the Jews would have thought could have never seen it could have never gotten it, could have never understood it because they're on the outside. They don't have the Torah. They don't have access to Yahweh. They don't have the temple. They don't have our prophecies and our revelations. Those people are the ones that Matthew is pointing at. And here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. They get it. They get it more than you. They understand it more than you. They see reality more than you. They're wiser than you. They can discern more than you. They get it more than you do. That's what Matthew's saying to the Jews. 
They comprehend the Lord in ways that you don't. Now again, it's tough for us to feel this punch that, that they would have felt on this. But who would this be for you? Like who do you view this way? Like that you're on the inside and they're on the outside. You get it and they don't. What would, what would be the offensive comparison? And we don't really have a direct one-to-one. I realize that this, this illustration or this uh, analogy is low-hanging fruit. But it's about as close as I can get to trying to communicate the offense of what was happening in this, in this chapter two. How would you feel wherever you stand on the political spectrum, wherever you stand on it, I am not making a political comment. I know I'm gonna get emails about this and my assistant would love to respond to you, okay? But I know that you're gonna, but I'm not, I'm not attacking any one side. Please don't think, oh yeah, he's definitely talking about, I'm not at all. I'm saying wherever you are on the, on the political spectrum, wherever you are, and we have people on all sides in this room and I love it, except one side. No, I'm kidding. But where, wherever you are on the religious, on the, on, the, on the political spectrum, how would you feel? However you fall on masks or vaccines or the Supreme Court hearings this week, pick a, pick a topic. However you feel about all of it, how would you feel if the Lord came to you and said, those who are on the opposite side from you, those who see this situation in this political moment completely different from you, those who are outside of your circles, they get it more than you do. They see reality more than you do. They're more wise than you. They're able to, yeah, that should be going off. <laughs> Is that from the Lord? Is that the Holy Spirit alarm? Is he telling me to stop talking? They discern reality better than you do. They see Jesus more clearly than you do. And the reason why you're stuck and the reason why you don't see it and they do, whoever they are for you, here's what Matthew chapter two is saying to these, to these Jews and what he would be saying to us. You're clinging to your own self-righteousness and it's proven you illegitimate. Your certainty that you are so right about this has left you apathetic and frozen and you don't get it. They get it. You're wrong. You're stuck in Jerusalem. And look who's on the front door of Bethlehem worshiping Jesus. Those that are not like you. That, that's what Matthew's saying to the first century Jew right here. And what if he's saying it to you today? Your religion, your religiosity, your view on this is so self-right that it's leaving you stuck, it's leaving you apathetic, it's leaving you unmoved by the story of the coming king. I'm telling you, this is what Matthew's saying, I'm telling you that the people who you've put on the outside understand Jesus more than you do. That's the punch. That's what Matthew's saying. You are stuck in Jerusalem and you refuse to go to Bethlehem because of your self-rightness. It has frozen you. And you won't even get up and walk five miles to see if it could be true. Your apathy, rooted in your self-righteousness, is what is stealing all of your joy. And outsiders get it more than you do. So Matthew's saying, I've got a note in my notes to check the clock. Okay? Doing okay. Kind of. Here's, here's what Matthew then goes to. Knowing that that's what he's saying 
to the to the religious Jew to the historical uh, religious leaders in this passage. Look at then how he closes with how the wise men do respond. Look at what he says about the wise men and their experience with Jesus. Look at how the wise men react to verse uh, to the coming Jesus in verse nine through eleven. We throw this back up there, Will, up on the screen. After listening to the king. They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, this construction of Greek words, ancient Greek was the language, the original language of the New Testament. This construction of Greek words, it's four words in Greek. We translate it rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's a pretty good English translation, pretty good literal translation of what Matthew's trying to say, but it is extreme. And whenever we in the modern day read extreme language, we're so numb to it because we over-exaggerate, we hyperbolize to try to make a point. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. No, it's not. Okay, so when we, when we use extreme hyperbole, we're trying to prove something, but, but Matthew's not doing that. Matthew's not using hyperbole. Matthew's not using superlatives just to try to prove a point. He's just telling you what happened. There are back-to-back-to-back-to-back superlatives, and he's telling you that's how extreme it was. They rejoiced excitedly with the most joy I've ever seen in a joyful way, and they were all smiling with joy in an exceeding superlative way. It's like, whoa, dude, calm down. Like, it couldn't have been that extreme. And he's going, no, that's what they did. I'm not trying to exaggerate to prove a point. I'm telling you what happened. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, the maximum amount of joy possible. There is no other construct of joy description in the New Testament that is this extreme. It could be said that this moment when the wise men burst into the manger or the house, no one really knows, when they burst in and see baby Jesus was the most joyful that anybody was in the entire New Testament. No one is said to experience this level of joy in the Bible. The only way to describe the reaction of these magi, and again, remember, if you're envisioning it in your mind, this is an entourage. This is dozens and dozens and dozens of adult men and they're acting like little kids on Christmas morning bursting into this house saying, I can't believe we get to meet the king. They're doing this in front of a baby. And here's what I love about this. These giddy adult men, no, no, they're not Jews. They, they don't know how they're supposed to treat the Messiah. They, they don't know the law. They don't know the rules. They don't know the holiness. They don't know what they're in front of. So no one's telling them, hey, when you walk in that door, make sure you act really excited because his ego might be offended if you don't jump up and down. They're, they just bust in and they can't contain it. No one's telling them to do this. It's just what they do. If you've seen the videos, I lose it every time when a serviceman or woman comes home and surprises their kids, like at a sports game or after school. I cannot take it 
Because here's what happens when the child sees their parent who they haven't seen in months. No one tells them you should go act excited. They just lose it. They lose all their inhibitions. They lose all the rules for how they're supposed to be acting. They can't take the excitement. My dad is home. My mom is home. They can't believe that it's happening. And they just, they, they're exuberant. They, they don't even know what to do with how they're feeling. That's what Matthew's saying. These adult, foreign, mystic, magi men were doing in front of a baby. So I'd love to ask you, when was the last time you felt that way about Jesus? And I don't say that in any way to shame you. Because I had to ask myself that question this week. When was the last time you beheld Jesus and couldn't hold it together? What, what did these magi know about this baby that would have caused them this kind of reaction? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us a whole lot, but there are some clues. There's a little bit, even in a really vague sense, there's some clues about what the magi knew about Jesus based on the gifts that they gave him. We're told that they bring their treasures. That Greek word is literally treasure chest. Like I love imagining like these men, this grown entourage carrying in this massive treasure chest, just like opening up this huge treasure chest. They brought it in a treasure box, I love it. And so one thing we know, they they brought something that was really expensive. And here's what we're told they bring, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was used as a currency, certainly, but it was the most precious metal in the world at the time. It was most often used as tribute or as payment to a king. And one thing you don't know about the Magi, but in their seat, like Daniel, when Daniel was a Magi in Babylon, the seat of a Magi in its ancient Near East context, they weren't just mystic artists, they weren't just astrologers, they weren't just mathematicians and scientists. Their seat of power in the political sphere was also, they had massive keys to the kingdoms in which they served. No king in a Magi-run kingdom, no king could ascend to the throne without Magi council approval first. So you don't get to sit on the throne of whatever kingdom you want to sit on unless the Magi Council approves of you to do so. And so get this now, this council of the Magi, they travel to Jerusalem, they go to the palace, because this is probably where the king's going to be born, right? Nope, he's in Bethlehem in a manger. And they go down, and none of the details of the story, none of it, have changed their mind on what they know to be true about this king. They don't come to vote on whether or not we think he should be or will be a good king. Here's what they say. It's tucked into their words. Where is one who has been born king? Meaning the day he took a breath, he was king. And we're not here to vote on it. We're here to tell you that he is. And so when they show up at the, at the manger site or at the baby site with Mary and Joseph and they present him gold, they are saying, this is a king. So they knew him to be a king, one. Two, frankincense. What was it? Well, it was frankincense. It was an incense. It was way more than a scented candle, though, but when you burnt it um, or melted it, it produced an, uh, an odor, an aroma that was pleasant. So it was very expensive. It could only be harvested from certain trees in the ancient areas, from certain pockets um, and, in Syria. And so there was, it was an expensive item to travel in these little jars, and so it was fragile and precious and, and, and very special. And so they bring frankincense. It, it, it would create a sweet aroma. Here's how a Jew would have read the fact that these wise men brought frankincense. It was used not just in Hebrew worship, but in other cultures' worship. 
in the temples of the gods where sacrifices were being made. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the temple. It's in the tabernacle. Jews, when you make certain sacrifices of animals, when you make certain offerings of animals to God, burn frankincense. And so here's another vague sense of what's going on. Not only is this a king, but somehow this king is going to present an offering. Somehow this king is going to present a sacrifice. And then we get to myrrh. And this one is maybe the most jolting. It's like, wait. Myrrh was another fragrance in the ancient Near East. It was expensive, wildly expensive. But myrrh was primarily used surrounding death and burial. It's used on Jesus when Jesus dies. John chapter 19, Nicodemus, who goes and gets Jesus' body off the cross with Joseph of Arimathea, and they put him in the tomb. What does Nicodemus use to embalm and fragrant, cover his body in fragrance? He uses myrrh. It was to prepare people for a tomb. That's myrrh's primary use. This sounds a little vulgar, but here's the equivalent of what, like how do you think Mary and Joseph were feeling this? This would be the equivalent of showing up at a baby shower with a gift card to a funeral home. Like, hey, glad your baby's being born. He's gonna die. It's like buzzkill. Like we, we know that, we know, we know, we know. But the wise men, the magi go, no, 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 no you don't understand. This is a king who's gonna present an offering or a sacrifice and we don't really get it, but it's gonna be through his own death. And so you get this vague but really powerful picture of what the Magi did know and did believe about King Jesus. That somehow and for some reason this king has come to die. And somehow and for some reason his death will be an offering. And what do they do as soon as they give it to him? They bow down and worship him. They know this is no other king. They know this is not some mere mortal. We are here to worship you. And even the whisper, even the faintest understanding of this, this king who's come to die and his death will be some kind of offering. I don't understand it all. I know I need to worship him though for it. The, all of this is what explodes their heart with joy. Like can you imagine as dark as that sounds like bringing a casket to a baby shower, like hey, we're here to celebrate this because this is good news for us. You've never met a king like Jesus and neither had they. And this superlative joy in seeing Jesus, the wise men, the way that they did it was because they knew he was a king who had been born to die and his death would be an offering. So here's the invitation this morning. Here's what this passage extends out to you is that you may want joy like these wise men had. You may want to rejoice exceedingly with great joy, but we don't believe you can manufacture that. We do believe you can practice it, though. And we practice it by participating in the kinds of things that bring our soul the deepest joy. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we come to the communion table. We're going to practice beholding Jesus, the king who has come to die for you. So let's pray and then we'll come to the table. King Jesus, you certainly were born to die. And we're so, many of us, even familiar with that idea that we can hear that and be unmoved by what that means. What kind of king are you, Jesus, that would want preparation for the tomb at your birth? 
This is our king. This is who you are. This is what you've come to do. And so I pray you slow us down long enough, Jesus, in this time and space. Give our hearts the ability to be present here in this, in this next few minutes that we might, we might practice the joy of beholding Jesus like these wise men. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.